0: All right, our theme for the week of prayer is preparing for the crisis. This evening, I want to look at the fearless in a time of fear. Do any of you remember the story of Ryan Bell? I am trying to find something here. Some here may remember hearing of him in the news six years ago. Ryan was a pastor of a church in Hollywood, California. In the 2010s, his church won the Innovative Church of the Year Award. However, three years later, in the spring of 2013, he was fired from pastoral ministry. It was a hard experience for him. I don't know, but perhaps he grew bitter at God for letting this happen. As he ruminated on this situation for the remainder of the year, he decided on a New Year's resolution starting January 1, 2014. He would go a year without God. He wrote in his blog, for the next 12 months I will live as if there's no God. What does that mean? Ryan Bell understood exactly what that meant. He continued, I will not pray. Read the Bible for inspiration, refer to God as the cause of things, or hope that God might intervene and change my own or someone else's circumstances. What does it mean to go without God? What is the life If there is no God, it means you live your life without prayer or Bible study. It means you live a life without any reference to God as a cause of anything. It also means, as Ryan Bell inadvertently acknowledged on his blog, it is a life without hope. Bell's year without God did not start out very well. Within a few days, he lost all sources of income. His wife began divorce proceedings. But fame started coming to him. An atheist raised 27000 for him, and for the next year, he was featured in Salon, The Washington Post, NPR, CNN, the BBC, and other prominent outlets. His blog site attracted thousands of hits daily. What is so unusual about someone going without God, without life-impacting Bible study, without genuine prayer? Isn't that the way many, many Christians live their lives? Going without God has been tried since the beginning of sin. There's an interesting verse in Genesis that's often overlooked, Genesis 4.26. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. From the earliest days of the race, there have been two groups of mankind. One group lives their lives as if there's no God. The other group sincerely called on the name of the Lord. Which group are you in? Which group is your home in? Review in Herald 5.4, 1886, there's many a prayerless home, and that too among those who profess to believe the special truths for this time. Associated with this is a companion problem. The Bible is not brought into the family as the guide of life. And this, of course, is associated with a third problem. The parents, not being men and women of prayer, do not train and command their households in the way of God's commandments. These are homes that are engaged in the same experiment that Ryan Bell engaged in. A life without God, living in homes without God. This is what a godless family is. This is what a godless home looks like. Two years later, I should say two years earlier, the same author had written in Signs of the Times, I know of nothing that causes me so great sadness as a prayerless home. Now, please don't miss the next sentence. I do not feel safe in such a house for a single night. The secret place of the Most High is the only place of safety. The secret place of the Most High is a place of prayer and Bible study. No man is safe a day or an hour without prayer. Great Controversy 530. The quotation goes on, And were it not for the hope of helping the parents to realize their necessity and their sad neglect, I would not remain. She only stayed in such homes to help parents realize the necessity of prayer and Bible study. She she sought to help them recognize their neglect of this privilege in duty. The children show the results of this neglect. How did they show it? For the fear of God is not before them. What made the author sense danger in such a house? She continues, The Parents should make a hedge about their children by prayer. Why was a prophet feeling unsafe in such homes? There was no hedge of protection about the family. Parents should pray with full faith that God will abide with them and that holy angels will guard themselves and their children from Satan's cruel power. This is dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. This is when he sends his angels and gives them charge over you to keep uh, you in all his ways. This, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. They should pray, With full faith that God will abide with them and that holy angels will guard themselves and their children from Satan's cruel power. How many are carefully studying God's word from the light that God has given me? We're told in 1888, page 120. I can say that not half of those who profess to believe the present truth have a thorough understanding of the third angel's message. Many believe the truth because they have heard it preached by someone in whom they had confidence. But 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God workmen that need not to be ashamed because we're rightly dividing the word of truth. The quotation continues, when our people search the word of God for themselves, we shall hear less murmuring than we hear today. So if there's a problem with murmuring... We know it's a problem with lack of Bible study. Continues, we need that faith that will lead us to study the Bible for ourselves and take God at his word. It's not just Ryan Bell that went a year without God. It is thousands of Christians that are going years without God. Are you among them? I believe Ryan Bell must have gone many years without God before he embarked on his fatal experiment. Poor Ryan Bell. Pity him. His atheism will not end well. God warns the inhabitants of the world that a time is coming when they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. In mercy, God personally appeals to Ryan Bell and all like him and asks, what will you do when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you? Proverbs 127. When that happens, without God, without hope, unsafe and unsaved, believe me, the Ryan Bells will not be fearless in a time of fear. How different is the life of the man the psalmist describes who's dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that fly out, flies by day. You shall not be afraid of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you've made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways." In their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The secret place of the Most High removes our fear because it removes our danger. Let's look at what this looks like. I would like to finish our short Bible study reading this evening with a study in contrast. A study that contrasts a fearless individual within the secret place of the Most High and a fearful individual outside that safe zone. I'm going to read excerpts from a favorite book of mine, Sketches from the Life of Paul. This was later expanded into the book The Acts of the Apostles, the fourth volume of the Conflict of the Ages series. I love to hear a skillful word artist paint pictures on the canvas of my mind. Paul before Nero. How striking the contrast. The very height of earthly power, authority, and wealth, as well as the lowest depths of crime and iniquity had been reached by the haughty monarch before whom the man of God answered for his faith. In his power and greatness, Nero stood unrivaled, unapproached. There were none to question his authority, none to resist his will. The kings of the earth laid their crowns at his feet. The most powerful armies marched at his command. The ensigns of his navies upon the seas betokened victory. His statute was set up in the halls of justice, and the decrees of senators and the decisions of judges were but the echo of his will. Millions of subjects bowed in obedience to his mandates. The name of Nero made the world tremble. To incur his displeasure was to lose property, liberty, and life. His frown was more to be dreaded than the pestilence. Yet, while surrounded by all the outward semblance of earthly pomp and greatness, adored and reverenced as a god in human form, he possessed the heart of a demon. Paul, the aged prisoner, without money, without friends, without counsel, had been brought forth from a loathsome dungeon to be tried for his life. He had lived a life of poverty, self-denial, and suffering, with a sensitive nature that Thirsted for love and sympathy, he had braved misrepresentation, reproach, hatred, and abuse. Shrinking with nervous dread from pain and peril, he had fearlessly endured both. He had lived and suffered for the truth's sake. He had been, I uh, skipped over, he had been like his master, a homeless wanderer upon the earth, seeking to relieve the burdens of humanity and to exemplify in his life, the life of Christ. How could the capricious, passionate, licentious, tyrant who had no conception of the value of a self-denying, virtuous, noble life be expected to understand or appreciate the character and motives of this son of God? Paul and Nero, face to face, the youthful monarch bearing upon his sin-stamped countenance the shameful record of the passions that reigned within, the aged prisoner's calm and malignant face telling of a heart at peace with God and man. The results of opposite systems of training and education stood that day contrasted. The life of unbounded self-indulgence and the life of utter self-sacrifice. Here were the representatives of two religions, Christianity And paganism. The representatives of two theories of life, the simplicity of self denying endurance, ready to give up life itself if need be for the good of others, and the luxury of all absorbing selfishness that counts nothing too valuable to sacrifice for a momentary gratification. The representatives of two spiritual powers, the ambassador of Christ, the representative of, and the slave of Satan. Their relative position showed to what extent the course of this world was under the rule of the prince of darkness. The wretch whose soul was stained with incest and matricide was robed in purple and seated upon the throne. While the purest and noblest of men stood before the judgment seat, despised, hated, and fettered. The vast hall, which was the place of trial, was thronged by an eager, restless crowd that surged and pressed to the front to see and hear all that should take place. Among those gathered there were the high and the low, the rich and the poor, the learned and the ignorant, the proud and the humble. Yet all alike were destitute of the true knowledge of the way of life and salvation. Again, the Jews urged against the prisoner the old charges of sedition and heresy while both Jews and Romans accuse him of in instigating the burning of the city. While his enemies were vehemently urging their accusations, Paul preserved a quiet dignity. No shade of fear or anger disturbed the peaceful serenity that rested upon his countenance. The people and even the judges beheld him with surprise. They'd been present at many trials and looked upon many a criminal, but never had they seen a man wear such a look of holy calmness as did the prisoner before them. The keen eyes of the judges, accustomed as they were to read the countenances of their prisoners, searched the face of Paul for some hidden trace of crime, but in vain. When he was permitted to speak in his own behalf, all listened with eager interest to his words. Once more, Paul had an opportunity to raise aloft before a wondering multitude, the banner of the cross. With more than human eloquence and power, he that day urged home upon their hearts the truths of the gospel. The wisdom of God was revealed through his servant. As Paul stands before the emperor of the world, his words strike a chord which vibrates in the hearts of even the most hardened and which thrills in unison with the mission of angels. Truth. Truth. Clear and convincing overthrows error and refutes falsehood. Never before had that company listened to words like these. Light was shining into darkened minds that would gladly follow the guidance of its precious rays. The truth spoken on that occasion would never die. Though the utterance of a feeble and aged prisoner, they were destined to shake the nations. They were endowed with a power that would live through all time, influencing the hearts of men when the lips that uttered them should be silent in a martyr's grave. As Paul gazed upon the throng before him, Jews, Greeks, Romans, with strangers from many lands, his soul was stirred with an intense desire for their salvation. He lost sight of the occasion, of the perils which surrounded him, of the terrible fate which seemed so near. He look, looked above all this to Jesus, the divine intercessor, the advocate pleading before the throne of God in behalf of sinful men. Earnestly he pointed his hearers to the great sacrifice made in behalf of the fallen race, and presented before them man in his true dignity and value. An infinite price had been paid for man's redemption, Provision had been made that he might be exalted to share the throne of God and to become the heir of immortal riches. By angel messengers, earth was connected with heaven, and all the deeds of men, good or evil, were opened before the eye of infinite justice. Thus pleads the advocate of truth, faithful among the faithless, loyal and true among the disloyal and disobedient. He stands as God's representative, and his words are as a voice from heaven. There is no trace of fear, sadness, or discouragement in countenance or manner. Strong in his conscious innocence, clothed with a panoply of truth, he rejoices that he is the Son of God. His words are like a shout of victory above the roar of the battle. The cause of truth to which he has devoted his life, he makes appear as the only cause that can never fail. Though he may perish for the truth's sake, the gospel will not perish. God lives and the truth will triumph. His countenance glows with the light of heaven as though reflecting the rays of the sun. Many who looked upon him in that hall of justice saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Tears dimmed many eyes that had never before been seen to weep. The gospel message found its way to the minds and hearts of many who would never have listened to it, but for the imprisonment of Paul. Never had Nero heard the truth as he heard it upon that occasion. Never had the enormous guilt of his own life been revealed to him as it was revealed that day. The light of heaven had pierced the sin-polluted chambers of his soul. He quaked with terror at the thought of a tribunal before which he, the ruler of the world, should be arraigned, and where his deed should meet a just reward. He was afraid of the apostles of God, and he dared not pass sentence upon Paul against whom no accusation had been sustained. A sense of awe for a time restrained his bloodthirsty spirit. For a moment, heaven had been opened before him by the words of Paul, and its peace and purity had appeared desirable. That moment, the invitation of mercy was extended even to the guilty and hardened Nero, but only for a moment. The command was issued for Paul to be taken back to his dungeon. And as as the door closed upon the messenger of God, so the door of repentance was forever closed against the emperor of Rome. Not another ray of light was ever to penetrate the dense darkness that enveloped him. There needed only this crowning act of rejection of divine mercy to call down upon him the retributive justice of God. It was not long after this that Nero sailed on his expedition to Greece, where he disgraced himself and his kingdom by the most contemptible and debasing frivolity. He returned to Rome with great pomp. And in his golden palace, surrounded by the most infamous of his courtiers, he engaged in scenes of revolting debauchery. In the midst of their revelry, a voice as of a tumult in the streets was heard, and a messenger was dispatched to learn the cause. He hastily returned with the appalling news that Galba, the head of an avenging army, was marching rapidly upon Rome, that insurrection had already broken out in the city and the streets were filled with an enraged mob, threatening death to the emperor and all his supporters, rapidly urging their way toward the palace. The wretched tyrant, as cowardly as he was cruel, was completely unmanned. He sprang from the table at which he had been feasting and drinking, overturning it in his blind terror and dashing the most costly wares to fragments. Like one beside himself, He rushed hither and thither, beating his forehead and crying, I'm lost, I'm lost. He had not, like the faithful Paul, a powerful, compassionate God to rely upon in his hour of peril. He knew that if taken prisoner, he would be subjected to insult and torture, and he considered how he might end his miserable life with as little pain as possible. He called for poison, but when it was brought, he dared not take it. He called for a sword, but after examining its sharp edge, he laid it also aside. Then, disguised in woman's clothing, he rushed from his palace and fled through the dark narrow streets to the Tiber. But as he looked into its murky depths, his courage again failed. One of the few companions who had followed him suggested that he escape to a country seat a few miles distant where he might find safety. Concealing his face, He leaped upon a horse and succeeded in making his escape. While the emperor was thus ingloriously fleeing for his life, the Roman Senate emboldened by the insurrection and the approach of Galva passed a decree declaring Nero to be the enemy of his country and condemning him to death. The news of this decision brought to Nero by one of his companions, the monarch inquired what manner of death he was to suffer. And was told that he was to be stripped naked, be fastened by his head in the pillory, and to be scourged to death. The monster who had delighted to inflict upon Christians the most inhumane torture shrank with horror at the mere thought of enduring like torture himself. He seized a dagger and again endeavored to nerve himself to plunge it into his heart, but the prick of the instrument was all that he could endure. As he threw it aside with a groan of despair, horsemen were heard approaching. His retreat was discovered a few moments and he would be in the power of his enemies. Terrified alike at the thought of torture and suicide, he still hesitated and was compelled at last to let a slave help his trembling hand force a dagger into his throat. Thus perished the tyrant Nero at the early age of 32. God in his infinite mercy bears long with the transgressors of his law. In the days of Abraham, he declared that the idolatrous Amorites should still be spared until the fourth generation, for their iniquity was not yet full, and he could not give command for their destruction. For more than 400 years, he spared them. But when instead of turning to repentance, they hardened their hearts in iniquity and made war upon his people, their day of probation closed, and the mandate went forth for their utter extinction. With unerring accuracy, the infinite one keeps a record of the impiety of nations and individuals, long as his mercy tendered to them with calls to repentance. But when their guilt reaches a certain limit, which is fixed, then mercy ceases her pleadings and the ministration of wrath begins. But Paul and Nero's story doesn't end with their death. There's another chapter coming. Paul will be resurrected. And a thousand years later, Nero will also be resurrected. But this time, their condition is reversed. There will be a great city with majestic walls. It is the secret place of the Most High. And Paul is still will still be dwelling there at the end of the thousand years, with millions resurrected with him who dwell with him in the secret place of the Most High. Nero is resurrected outside this fortress. Amid the ransomed throng are the apostles of Christ. The heroic Paul, the ardent Peter, the loved and loving John, and their true-hearted brethren, and with them the vast host of martyrs. All outside the walls, with every vile and abominable thing, are those by whom they were persecuted, imprisoned, and slain. There's Nero, that monster of cruelty and vice, beholding the joy and exaltation of those whom he once tortured, and in whose extremest anguish he found satanic delight. The whole wicked world stand arrayed at the bar of God on the charge of high treason against the government of heaven. They have none to plead their cause. They are without excuse. And the sentence of eternal death is pronounced against them. Now Nero, the former unrighteous judge, is being judged by God, the righteous judge. God has already declared what His judgment will be. Proverbs 11:31. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. Malachi 4:1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. Says the Lord of hosts that will leave them neither root nor branch. Nero will have a lot of company. In the days of Noah, the despisers of God's grace mocked the open door into the ark. But when the door closed and the rain came, they rushed to the ark and knocked, pleading for entry. But no entry was given them. So those outside the city will see the gates of Pearl closed. And Jesus warned his hearers, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our street. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be Weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. God's heavenly supreme court not only convicted Nero, it also reversed the Nero, Roman, and Jewish Sanhedrin's conviction against Paul. At the time of his death, Paul understood this. From his harsh dungeon, he confidently wrote Timothy his dying words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a crown that is offered to us and all who dwell in the secret place of the Most High. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. No wonder the apostate prophet Balaam exclaimed, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. But it is only the righteous life that can have a righteous death. How many would like to join me in surrendering all we have and are to Christ, determining to dwell in the secret place of the Most High with daily prayer, daily searching of the Scripture, and daily obedience to its directions. Those who do this will be able to look back at the end of life, as Paul did, and see Christ leading and guiding them, protecting them, nourishing them, refreshing them throughout their life, and they will be through fearless through every time of fear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to be fearless because we're in the secret place of the Most High. We want to be like Paul, not like Nero. When the time of fear grips nations, we want to be secure in your hand. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to study your word. Give us repentance that leads us to hate sin and love Jesus. Love righteousness, love goodness. We thank you for hearing this prayer and answering it in Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about AudioVerse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org